do appreciate our, um, all of our team, all of the people who support us in our ministry here. And uh, unfortunately, even though you test some things in advance and it works perfectly, when it comes to the moment, it doesn't always. So thank you, Cherry, for your endurance uh, in that moment, for sharing a beautiful, meaningful song. It was worth the wait that we can be reminded that Jesus has offered such a beautiful invitation to all who are weary and heavy laden, they can come to him and find rest. And that's anyone, whatever those burdens may be, whatever that history, whatever the past, whatever the guilt, whatever the shame, Jesus is willing to take those things on. So I'm thankful for that reminder. I've been watching the news very carefully, as I'm sure many of you have, watching what's happening, especially in Israel and Gaza right now, and, and I'm astounded once again, and yet it affirms for me once again the truth of God's Word, the fact that this is not a book written just by people who are trying to cook up some sort of new religion. There is so much prophetic truth that we can see taking place in front of us unfolding even now. No other country would be treated in this way. If terrorists attacked our country and destroyed such a huge proportion of our population with such heinous crimes, with such hideous wickedness, there would be an expectation that they would be dealt with decisively. And when Israel tries to defend itself, all the world turns against them, the victims. That just tells me that what we see in Scripture is true. God chose these people to be the people through whom he would deliver not only revelation of himself, but the Messiah, Savior for the world, and Satan hates them for it and has done everything he can to fight back against that. He despises that relationship between God and Israel. So as we've studied Leviticus, we are seeing the roots of what we continue to see the fruit of today. We see in Leviticus God establishing a nation. In Exodus, we see the beginning of the fulfillment of his promises to Abraham. Now remember in, in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and 22, God spoke to Abraham and said, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And he said, I am through you and your offspring through your son Isaac, going to provide a blessing who will be one who will be a blessing to all the peoples, all the nations of the earth. And he told Abraham, those who bless you and your descendants, I will bless, and those who curse you and your descendants, I will curse. And so we see this tension continue to be continuing to be followed through. God also told Abraham at that time that he would live to a nice, ripe old age, and that he would die and be buried, and that it would be his other descendants who would find themselves in a foreign country, that they would become enslaved, that they would be there for 400 years, and that God would then bring them out and bring them back to that land and give it to them in perpetuity. And so we saw exactly that. We saw the, through the book of Exodus... We saw from the end of Genesis how God delivered uh, that family, Jacob's family, Israel, to Egypt through the famine, through Joseph being installed in the position that he was in Egypt, and, and 
moved the family there. And then we read later on that there came generations later another Pharaoh who didn't care about who Joseph was, didn't care about who these people were and how they were once special to the Pharaoh and protected by him. Now he saw them as a threat because God was blessing them and multiplying them. They were becoming a great nation. He was afraid they were going to overwhelm the Egyptians. And so he put them under hard labor in an attempt to squash them. God continued to bless and multiply them. And then you remember the great contest between the one true and living God and the pantheon of gods of the Egyptians, and he just destroyed the reputation of every one of the Egyptian gods through the plagues because they attacked the very things for which those various Egyptian gods were supposed to be responsible. He just destroyed them, one thing after another. And with a mighty hand, he brought his people out and brought them through trials and tribulations in the desert that we are in the midst of right now in our study, ultimately to that land and establish them as a nation. So you have to have three people, uh, three things rather, in order to make a nation. When God said, I'm going to make a nation of you, Abraham, what, there have to be three things to make a nation. There has to be, well, first of all, people. And secondly, there has to be law. There has to be a code for those people, and there has to be land. And one by one, God is fulfilling his promises to Abraham. He made them a great people in Egypt. In fact, he protected them there because if they had stayed in Canaan, they kept being approached by the Canaanites saying, hey, why don't we intermarry? We can all just become one people. And God said, no, I'm going to preserve you as one people. So he sent them to Egypt where the Egyptians found them gross because they were shepherds and they were hairy and stuff like that. It was totally against what was cool in Egypt. And so they didn't want to have anything to do with them. And so God preserved them even through slavery as a people and multiplied them, brought out this great nation. Now he's got them in the wilderness, and now he's establishing his law with them. And then he would follow up with providing them the land that he had promised to make them that nation through which he would send to us our Savior. So as we look at this law code, we see again and again that God is working for his people Through his law code, he is teaching them to understand more about him, about his nature, about his character, about his will and his ways. And each one of the ceremonies that he demanded that they carry out, he demanded that they be carried out very specifically in great detail. And some of those things you can imagine if you were them in those circumstances looking at these things, you might ask yourself, why that? Why do we have to do it like that? Why that very specific instruction? What, what does that mean? And yet we have seen over and over again, through the beautiful perspective of hindsight, as we look at New Testament Scripture, especially in Hebrews that reflects so much on the book of Leviticus, we have seen again and again that whether they understood it at the time or not, God was building into these events, into these festivals, these ceremonies, these sacrifices, foreshadowings symbols, pictures of what he was going to do through Jesus Christ, who would be the Savior, the Messiah, not only for the Israelite people, but for all the nations of the world, as God promised Abraham. And so we come to the Feast of first fruits and the Feast of Weeks, and the last time we were here in Leviticus, we looked at the first part of that. It's really, it's really kind of one big event divided by seven weeks and a day. And so we have part A and part B. We looked at part A before, the, the Feast of first fruits, which 
which took place immediately on the heels of the Passover. And that was characterized by the waving of the first sheaf of barley. Now we're in Leviticus chapter 23, if you want to find me there. Use your own text if you can. We, there, there's a lot of different texts, and so we're not doing all the slides. So please use your own copy. And if you don't have your own copy, but you have a device at hand, you can always go to BibleGateway.com. And there you can even find, I'm using the English Standard Version translation, the ESV. You can look up the passage there and follow along. So everybody can find their way, I think. All right, Leviticus chapter 23. Now we looked before in verses 9 through 14 at the first fruits. This is all part of the festival, that's, the, the celebration that's called Shavuot. And the first part, the first fruits, was the waving of the sheaf, the first sheaf of barley. And so there was, as we, as we discovered, this whole ceremony of, of priests, Levites, coming out from the temple and going to a nearby field and harvesting the first bundle of barley and waving that before God at the temple, right before the altar. And it was a big event. The people came out from far and wide just to watch this ceremony, just as we have observances today, whether it be Anzac Day in the, in the early morning or something like that. It was this sort of event where people came from all over the place just to observe the harvesting of that first sheaf and the bundling of that and then, and then taking it back into the temple and then the, and the priests waving this before God. And this was really a recognition of God's provision. This was the very beginning of the barley harvest, and this was a, a recognition that, that God provides, and we're going to trust Him for provision. They had not received everything yet. They had not taken in all this harvest yet, and there was still more harvest to come. So they're just taking the very first harvest and offering it up to God, and it becomes part of a grain offering, part of it burnt on the altar, and the rest given to the priests. But this was to indicate, God, we're going to give you, from the very first, trusting you for what follows. It was an act of faithful anticipation. In other words, anticipation in faith of what God was going to provide. So they gave him the first. So it was anticipation of God's blessing. It was a giving of thanks for things yet to come. And then we saw also that there was a foreshadowing in that of Christ. We saw a foreshadowing of God's provision through Jesus Christ because he is called in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 19 through 23, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, of those who have been raised from the dead. He was, he was God's first act of, of resurrection in this new era where he is, begins to be the promise of those who follow Christ, those who put their trust in him, will likewise be resurrected. Jesus was the first, the first of the crop, so to speak, in that way. And so the fact that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead demonstrated that he accepted Christ's sacrifice as satisfaction for his justice, and that being evidenced by his resurrection, now there's hope for the rest of us. If we follow Christ, if we accept his gift of forgiveness purchased by his blood, then we can trust, because we saw God the Father raise Jesus Christ, we can trust that he will raise us to new life as well. And so that first fruits feast was a pointing forward to God's future blessings. Well, now we come to verse 15 in this chapter, Leviticus 23, verse 15. And we come to the, the next part of this first fruit celebration known as Shavuot. And here we see the first fruits 
as a thanksgiving for God's provision. Whereas previously, we identified it as first fruits as recognition of God's provision. That was that anticipation. Now we see first fruits as thanksgiving for God's provision. So you've seen our theme today already, and it comes on the heels of our American thanksgiving. Quite incidentally, I didn't plan it that way. But I was pleased to find that as I was getting into the text and go, well, this is pretty cool for me to get to study this and what is my Thanksgiving week. Because this was the Israelites' Thanksgiving feast. What we see in these verses, if you'll follow along with me, I'll just read the text and then we'll come back and take our notes on it. Leviticus 23, verse 15 through 22 You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offerings. That's referring to that first part, the waving of the barley sheaf that we just talked about. So starting from then, they start counting out seven weeks, okay, from that day. And you shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. So it's a new grain offering. It's a different one than that barley offering. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved. Now notice, loaves of bread, this is something different. Two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. Baked with leaven, that's different. And you shall present with the bread seven lambs a year old without blemish and one bull from the herd, and two rams. They shall be a burnt offering to the Lord. And you remember, we went through the different offerings and what each one of them signified. The burnt offering was continual, recognizing the need for sacrifice for sin always, because we're all guilty, we're all found with sin. And so that burnt offering was, was preceded every other type of offering. Okay? But this is an extra full version of that was seven lambs being brought and a bull and two rams. So they were to be a burnt offering on this day to the Lord with the grain offerings and the drink offerings that often accompanied those things, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And verse 19, you shall offer one male goat for a sin offering, one of the other sacrifices, and then two male lambs a year old as a sacrifice of the peace offerings, yet another one of the sacrifices outlined for us at the beginning of the book. And the priest shall wave them, these offerings, with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs, and they shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall make a proclamation on that day. You shall hold a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. It is a statute forever in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after the harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. That's significant as well. I am Yahweh, your God. Well, so we see the first fruits as a thanksgiving for God's provision. And first of all, we have the waving of the two first loaves from the wheat harvest. There in verses 15 through 17. Now, this is day 50 from the waving of the first sheaf, as I said, of the barley, back in verses 9 through 11 of this same chapter. So, seven weeks plus a day we have, and this brings us to the end of the wheat harvest. 
So there was the barley harvest followed by the wheat harvest, and now we've come to the end of that. So this is kind of like the concept of the American Thanksgiving, where this is when all the things have been gathered in, and now we're saying, thank you, God, for this blessing. Thank you for all that you've provided. So whereas the first part of this was on the front end of the harvests in anticipation, this is now thanksgiving and reflection upon God's great provision. Thanking God for his provision of crops and of livestock as well. You see that represented in all these other extra sacrifices that were there. And so this was an offering of, a, of the full range of sacrifices and celebrations. That's a B point there if you're taking your, your outline down. By the way, I don't have the handout, but if you still need, if you want paper, if you want to copy it down, if you put your hand up, or you can go to that back table over there. There's some little half sheets of paper you can grab something to take notes on. So sorry I didn't provide that for you today. Um, but the outline, I think, is clear if you want to jot it down. So we have the full range of these things, recognizing that he provided not only grain, crops, and these sorts of things, but also the livestock have multiplied. So this is recognizing God's blessing in all these ways. Now, it's also uh, the celebration aspect of this is because they were to do no work, as we read. They were to make a, verse 21, a proclamation on the same day that you shall have a holy convocation. There's a people come together that don't do any regular work. And we know from further history that there would be recountings of God's promises and his deliverance. There would be the oral retelling, and eventually there would be the reading of Scripture as it was all codified, but they would retell how God chose Abraham, our, our forefather, and then, he, and then he blessed Isaac and his 12 sons and how he, he led them to Egypt and how he multiplied them and, and then how, look how he delivered us and he's, and he's brought us out of slavery, out of Egypt. And as the years went by, there would be more to tell of God's blessings and faithfulness to them. And so they would take this opportunity this, in this convocation to celebrate God's goodness to them. And there was also a provision here for God's ministers uh, as to the Lord, the gifts that were given to His people. Can we advance this further, guys? We're on to B on the next slide. They were providing, God was providing through his people for his ministers because as they took a part of the grain offering and burnt it, the rest was given to the priests. And as they offered up these portions of each one of these sacrifices, as we saw God's instructions before, with each one of those sacrifices, there was a portion that was burnt and the rest was given over to the priests. And so God, people were giving back to God a portion of the many blessings he had given them and, and it was used as a provision for the priests in his service and that was considered giving to God. And so this was, much like our thanksgivings, much like our offerings today, where we are returning to God some of his blessings, which is a reminder to us again and again. It's a conscious self-reminder when we make that choice, just as the Israelites were called to do, to be intentional about giving back to God a portion to say, I know this came from you. I know that you're the one who provides it all. So I have no need to hoard. I'm not going to claim it all as my achievement, my accomplishment, my accumulation. It's that open hand that gives back to the Lord in acknowledgement and in thanksgiving. And God used that as well to provide for his ministers. So this was Thanksgiving celebration. 
Thanksgiving for God's provision. But also this part of the first fruits celebration was a symbol of God's salvation. There was in this a symbol of God's salvation. This is what I found particularly interesting as I, as I got into the study, I think. First of all, we see that there's uh, in this an inclusion of provision for the poor and for, and for the Gentiles. Now see, there tended to be so much the, the, the thinking of, of many of the Jewish people, they would get kind of hooked on the idea, they liked the idea that, you know, we're God's chosen people. We're special to God. We're special to the one true and living God, and that's, you know, you know, they wouldn't say it this way, but pretty cool. Right? So they, they like that status. But sometimes forgot that from the very beginning, God said it would be through Abraham's offspring that he would provide blessing to all the nations. And so that part of it kind of got lost. The, the forgetfulness about the fact that God chose his people Israel so that there would be one nation amongst all the nations who would always know, who would preserve this knowledge and this revelation that he would deliver to them of who the one true and living God is and what he's like, and that their society would be a model for others if they lived according to his law, a model for others of what it's like to live in, a, in accordance with the character and the will and the ways of a true and holy God. And so we saw that he was not capricious. We saw that, there was, there, that there's provision for the poor, even here in this text once again, that there's consideration for the weak among them, but also even for the sojourners. So even though he's called them apart to be his own special chosen nation, there were those who had attached themselves to Israel because they saw, they recognized the one true and living God was blessing them. Even when we look back to just a little before this time that we're studying in Egypt, we saw eventually that even Pharaoh's courtiers were beginning to beg him. His counselors were saying, give in. We can't stand up against this God. He's destroying our nation. Why won't you yield? And then we saw God instruct the people before the the Passover and the deliverance. He instructed the people, now, Go talk to your Egyptian neighbors, those who have been your taskmasters, and now you go and ask them for stuff. And so by now, the Egyptians, they they were fearful of these Israelites because of their God. They had seen his hand. And so now the Israelites were able to just walk into that taskmaster's home and say, I really like that set of golden candlesticks. Could I have those? Please take them. There's a matching platter. Just go. (laughs) And so they plundered the Egyptians when they left. Well, there were Egyptians, apparently, because we have constant reference to the sojourners among them, there were others, uh, there were those among them who said, hey, can we go with you? We think you're on the winning team. You know, we'd like to hitch our wagon to to yours. Let's, Let's go with you. And so they came along. And so even though they didn't share quite the same status as God's chosen people Israel because of his specific promises, they were still included in many of these blessings and God made provision for them, even though they might be the servants among the Israelites. They might be the poor amongst the people of this nation. God attaches to this Thanksgiving festival this very specific instruction in verse 22, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Okay? 
leave the perimeters, leave the corners. Don't be too thorough, in other words. Be intentionally sloppy about how you harvest God's blessings. In fact, you shall not gather the gleanings after the harvest. So the things that fall off when you pick up that bundle to to make a sheaf and some of the parts fall off, don't pick them up. When you you put those sheaves up up onto the cart to haul them out of the field and one of them rolls off, leave it. It's not for you anymore. It's part of God's provision for the poor and for the sojourners, for the others in their society, the not Jewish people. So we see that even in this harvest practice that was attached to the festival of Thanksgiving, it was creating opportunity for the others in their community that they can be provided for. And we see that through this, he was reminding each generation that every good thing comes from God. You don't need to hoard. You don't need to grasp. You don't need to worry. You don't need to be stingy because it's God who provides the good things. Recognize that. Give thanks for that and be generous. He was teaching his people Israel this lesson, an important one. But also, in B in this point, foreshadowing we see a foreshadowing of God's intention to include all peoples in his salvation. Because we see the symbol of these two loaves. Now, this is really interesting. All the other grain offerings were to have no leaven because it was very clear, even from back in the Passover, from the establishment of the Passover feast, that there was to be leaven cleared out of the house. Anything with leaven was supposed to be gone in advance of the Passover. There was to be no inclusion because leaven was a symbol of sin. Well, they were allowed at other times to eat leaven, but when it came to ceremonial events and ceremonial meals and things like that, there was to be no leaven because that was a symbol of sin because you know how leaven has a way of spreading rapidly? A little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? Okay, That little bit, it was like that. And so God used this amongst his people as a symbol for sin. So when it came to the sacrifices, to the offerings to God, it was always a grain offering that was roasted with no leaven whatsoever. There was oil and there was frankincense, the oil representing God's blessing, and eventually it was attached to that of the idea of the Holy Spirit. But the frankincense was what was also offered up. That, that's what led up the beautiful aroma when it was put on the fire. And that was a symbol of the prayers of God's people going up to heaven. And so, so when they brought grain offerings, they would usually have no leaven, but they would have oil and frankincense. Well, now they're instructed very specifically to take these two portions of the wheat harvest and to make these two, not one, but two special loaves of bread. And, and when you look at the portion and do a little research on that, you find out that this is a rather large loaf. This is kind of like what today is the challah, the, the, the woven loaves you've seen maybe that are used sometimes in Jewish celebrations. The, this is a big loaf of bread. And so these two big loaves were to come and to be like a grain offering, lifted up by the priest before the altar and waved before the Lord. They would wave back and forth and up and down before the Lord presenting it to him, along with these other offerings. Why? Why these leavened loaves, and why two? 
Well, when we come to the New Testament and we see the carrying out of this particular feast in the New Testament, we find that it is at that time called Pentecost. Pentecost referring to the 50 days of the counting from the previous part of the feast. And so it was at the Pentecost that God did something very special after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we saw this, the symbolism of, the, of Jesus as the first fruits, his resurrection being significant and the symbol of the first fruits and the first part of this feast here for Israel. And then 50 days later is this Pentecost where something else happens. Interesting. Well, when we have a look, first of all, in John 10, if you'll have a look there with me. John 10, verses 14 through 16, we see Jesus hinted at this. He hinted at the significance of what we, we can now identify as the significance of the two loaves. He speaks to a Jewish audience in John 10, verses 14 through 16, when he says, I am, that's one of his very significant I am statements, by the way, or that Greek uh, form, you know, he would normally just say me in, in regular Greek conversation, you would say me because in the, in the language, the, the form of me implied, it included in it the first person singular, so if I was saying I am, you know, hungry, or I am Brian, or whatever like that, I would just say me. That's, that's the I myself am, right? But in these statements in John where Jesus says, I am, seven times, it's ego me, which adds the first person plural, uh, first person singular pronoun, which is an interesting emphasis. It stands out in conversation as though he's really making a statement. So it would be like I said, if I were to stand here and say, I myself am the one named Brian. It stands out as, well, that's an interesting way to put that. Okay. And so this is one of those places where Jesus says, I myself am the one who is the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now get this, this was something that blew some of their minds. And as you read further in the text, you see that they started to kind of have a little bit of a rumble over it. Because he says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. What? I must bring them also. What? The good shepherd says, I've got other sheep. You're not the only ones. Wait a minute. We are God's chosen people. Not anybody else. Jesus is giving them a really big clue here. Okay? I am the one who is the good shepherd, and I have other sheep not from this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. So we have a combination of flocks that are going to come under the protection of the one shepherd. 
what was Jesus talking about? Well, when we come to Pentecost, following Christ's resurrection, which coordinated with that first fruits, first part of the first fruits offering, he was the first fruits from the dead. He was resurrected on the very same day that that celebration was recognized. Coincidence? I think not. And then, for 40 days, during this interim period of, of the 50 days count, for 40 days, he, he walks amongst people, resurrected, showing up in the flesh, eating meals with them, letting them touch the wounds in his hands. Even uh, Paul accounts for us because it was a well-known thing, appearing before a group of 500 people at one time. Talk about eyewitnesses. And when that was written, Paul was writing in the time when all those people were alive and there were plenty of people who could verify or he wouldn't dare to write such a thing. People could have said, now, Paul, you're just making up stories. But there were so many people who saw this that it was incontrovertible. So Jesus is in the flesh. He's resurrected. That much has been proven. Then he goes to the Mount of Olives at the end of this time, and he tells his disciples who follow him to that point, now, I want you to stay here in Jerusalem. Some of them had homes a little further abroad, but he said, I want you guys to stay here and wait for me to send my spirit back to you. And he had promised before earlier in the book that when I go, I will send my spirit. And it will be to your advantage that I go because when I send my spirit, he will be able to be with you and commune with you everywhere you go. You will always have a direct link to the Father through the Spirit. He will be your helper. And so now Jesus says, I want you to stay here because I'm going to send the Spirit. And I want you to be here in Jerusalem for that. He had a purpose in that. And so they see him taken up by the Father into heaven. So they go back to Jerusalem, and they're in the midst of this turmoil, this interesting time when it had been kind of dangerous to identify with Jesus because, you know, it was just less than two months ago that he was dragged away and beaten and crucified, and they were kind of looking around for now, who are, where are those followers of his? And so you remember they were hiding in the upper room when Jesus appeared to them one of the first times? They were hiding out. And so, so now here they are, they're like, it's still kind of dangerous maybe because now the Romans are even more concerned because Jesus' body disappeared. They've got soldiers saying that they saw him resurrected. They've got all these other people saying, we've seen him. And now this is really kind of an unnerving time for the Roman rulers. They're afraid these people are going to get all worked up and follow this idea of this Messiah Jesus guy and they might fight back against the Romans and what are we going to do? So they want to hunt these guys down and root them out and get rid of them. They know this. So these Christians, they go back, they go to another upper room, and they're huddled and they're just praying. They're fearful. They're excited. They're praying. They're worshiping together, calling upon God. But what do we do next? Jesus promises spirit. What does that mean? And then we come to Acts chapter 2. And we see the events there. I don't want to read the whole chapter. I'd love to read the whole chapter, but I won't do that to you right now. You read the chapter later, okay? All right? I'll summarize, okay? But we see that the Holy Spirit does come. 
And there's even this, this somehow, somehow this, this visual indicator, because this is something God wanted to impress on them deeply. And so there were these, these flames of fire, apparently, looked like a tongue or a lick of fire over their, over their heads as they're praying. And all of a sudden, every one of these followers of Jesus Christ begins to speak and pray in foreign languages. And all of a sudden, they find this courage that they lacked just moments before, and they spill out of the upper room, and they go out into the city in Jerusalem, and they start speaking the gospel message of a resurrected Jesus Christ to every language of people that were there. And there were so many there, we can see in the passage, because they had all come for the Pentecost feast, because it was one of the mandatory attendance feasts of Israel. And so they had come from far and wide where the Israelites had been dispersed, and now they're all just piling into Jerusalem from all these different regions. You have like 12 different regions mentioned that go all the way out of Asia Minor, what we would call Turkey, all Northwest Turkey and, and beyond, all of these places they've come together, and it lists all these different language groups of people who have come to Jerusalem for this event, and all of a sudden, they hear these Jewish people from this region speaking in their language. And they're talking about this resurrected Jesus. They're sharing the gospel message with boldness and in languages that every one of these foreigners can understand, and they're amazed. And God reaps a harvest of thousands of people that day who come to faith in Jesus Christ. And thus, the church is born. And the gospel message is taken back with those people to all these different regions. And then you see, following that, the efforts of Paul as he goes and helps to establish churches in those areas and and others with him as well. But the church is born at Pentecost. You see this provision of salvation that is now being offered to the nations from this event. Now, these were primarily Jewish people from the different regions, but we see almost immediately upon that the ministry of Paul that delivers the clear message that, yes, it is intended for the Jewish people. In fact, Peter is called to witness to Cornelius soon after this. He was a a Roman who came to faith in Jesus Christ. And once again, the minds of the Jewish people were blown because of what? The Holy Spirit is given to these Gentile people in the same way that he was given to us? Wow, and so we see that there's a significance. Okay, okay, so what do you suppose the two loaves of the Pentecost feast represented? We have these two separate loaves that are brought together and waved together as one offering before God on Pentecost. And they're leavened loaves because they represent sinful people. The first grain offering and the first first fruits, that represented Christ being offered up as the first fruits. Now we have these two leavened loaves. These are the first, first fruits of the people, the sinful people who would be saved by faith in Jesus Christ at Pentecost on this very same day many years later when the stamp of God's blessing and verification of inclusion comes on the day of Pentecost. We have the different sheep coming together into one flock. We have the different groups of sinful people, Jewish and Gentile, coming together as one offering before God. 
there was significance in the celebration of each of the feasts in the Old Testament. God was preparing people for the most profound realities that he was going to, to bring to pass through Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Paul reflects on this then in Ephesians chapter 2. It's kind of a verification for us, just in case you think I'm getting carried away with ideas. In Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 18, Paul says, Therefore remember, he's, he's writing to a mixed group here, he says, Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. So in other words, the Jewish people always called you the uncircumcised people because they're the circumcised and that was one of their big distinctions. Okay? So you've been called names, the uncircumcised, that was a derogatory word. Okay? But now, those of you, that was your status, and we're referring to the circumcision of the flesh made by hands. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, the Messiah. That's what Christ means, Messiah. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our, beautiful choice of words, our peace. He himself, there's that same emphatic reference to one particular individual. He himself is our peace who has made us both one. There's the two parts. Been made into one, the circumcised and the uncircumcised, the Jewish and the Gentile. He's drawn the Gentiles close and included them. And he's made the two one. He's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near, peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit. There's the spirit that was given at Pentecost. We now both have access in one spirit to the Father. What a beautiful message. This is what is sometimes referred to by Paul as the, as the mystery, because the Jewish people couldn't even understand the scope of what God was, was planning. But we see that here in Jesus Christ, now all of that law stuff, all of those, all of those festivals, all the celebrations, all those sacrifices, he says right here, they are abolished by Jesus. He's fulfilled them all. All of that stuff was pointing forward to him, and now he's come. He has fulfilled all of those things, and so now there's not a separation between those who follow that law and those who don't have that law, or those who are of the chosen people of Israel and those who are not the chosen people of Israel. Now, Jesus Christ has come and made it possible for everyone to have the same access to God by his Spirit, and that Spirit is given to those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, who have appropriated for themselves the benefits of his sacrifice. And that can only be done by faith. By faith you are saved. By grace 
Through faith, you are saved. And it's not, of your, not any effort of your own. It's not of works, unless anyone should boast. The boasting is taken away now from the Jewish people. The boasting is taken away from the self-righteous person. No one can say, I know I'm going to heaven because I'm good enough. No one can ever say that. But anyone can say, I know I'm going to heaven because Jesus paid it all, and I've accepted his sacrifice. I've appropriated those benefits for myself by faith because he's invited me to do so. And so I have made that decision to trust him, to lean into him, to let go any idea of merit of my own. No merit of my own. I accept what Jesus has done for me. And God accepts you as one of his people. He promises now that salvation for you. He grants you his spirit to help you through the rest of this life and to usher you into the next where you can be reunited with your Savior. What God has achieved is amazing. And it just seems foolish to try to do anything else but to accept that amazing gift of grace. It's really kind of heartbreaking. I don't feel so much judgmental as I do really sad when I see the efforts that people go to to find some other way for themselves. Every other religion in the world, I don't feel competitive about Christianity versus the other other religions. I feel sorry for those who are trying this other way because every other way relies upon the efforts of the individual. You just hope and pray and wish that somehow there's something better for you on the other side, that somehow you'll manage to deserve it. And that I've seen what that has done to people. It has twisted people's lives. And depending on the track that they try to follow, sometimes it's really degradating to the people. It's degrading. It's humiliating. It's sacrificial and without good reason. I've told you know, many of you before, you know, visiting Costa Rica and traveling through the country roads and the mountains, uh, approaching one of the cities, and, and there's a famous cathedral there where there's supposed to be a little fountain that somehow you know, someone deemed to be a blessed fountain and and, uh, you know, the people can find blessings from God if they go there and drink this water and so on. And, and then and we visited the cathedral. But, but on the way to the cathedral, we saw so many people walking alongside these rough country mountain roads barefoot. And at first you think, well, that's sad, these poor people. But then you notice they've got shoes. But they've tied the laces together and flung them over their shoulder. They're walking, they're just tearing up their feet. And I asked our guide, well, why are these people walking barefoot along the side of the road? Oh, they're doing as penitence to God. They're on their way to the cathedral, and they're hoping that God will see their, how devout they are and bless them for it. And then we come to the cathedral, and, and this long center aisle is cobblestones. And you see these people come down from the very back and get on their knees and crawling forward on their knees on these horrible, rough, uneven cobblestones all the way to the front. Same idea. Impress God with how devout you are. Folks, this is so unnecessary. God doesn't need that from you. 
He doesn't need that from anyone. He doesn't desire that. Because none of these things will ever accumulate to deserving God's forgiveness and grace and eternal life. It can never erase what we've already done in the past. So the only hope is to throw oneself on God's mercy, to receive gratefully, thankfully, His grace because Jesus came. God went to such lengths to, to, to foreshadow, to indicate, to, to throw symbols out there, ceremonies after ceremonies that were enacted year after year for a couple thousand years pointing to this so that everybody could see all the big, giant, glowing red arrows pointing to Jesus Christ as the way. And if you will just accept what He's done for you, the forgiveness is promised. Salvation is secure. Eternity is yours. You don't have to have bloody knees or bloody feet. You can simply just throw yourself under the blood of Jesus Christ, accept His sacrifice, His atoning, cleansing sacrifice for you. And I know many here have already availed themselves of that gift, but I know there are some who haven't. And I know that there are other people who listen to these messages. And so I urge those people to consider what God is offering and to accept it today. These are just my summary things to consider here. A few brief points. They're meant to come out one by one, but apparently the formatting's lost. So stick with me. First of all, God truly is the source of every good and perfect gift. We see that, and it's reaffirmed James chapter 1, verse 17, where it says every good gift, every perfect gift comes from God, Father of lights, in whom there's no shadow of turning. He's reliable. You can trust Him. That's what the celebration was about. Secondly, as those who have been brought near and included as God's people today, we have the same responsibility to remember to give thanks for all His provisions, the tangible and the intangible. The things that take care of us today and the things that will take care of us for eternity. The present things and the promised things. We need to remember to be thankful. And if you do not have that faith-based relationship with God, I'm sorry to tell you, you are not one of His people. I don't care if that doesn't sound politically correct and inclusive. The Bible is so clear about that. There's one way. Jesus himself said in John with the same kind of language, I myself am the one who is the way and the truth and the life. And he says quite plainly, no one comes to the Father except through me. So I'm here to tell you just what Jesus said. If you haven't put your faith in him, you are not one of God's people. And none of us who are God's people are any better, but we are blessed. And we're thankful. We can be certain of heaven. And you can be too, because the door is still open. Anyone can put their faith in Jesus Christ and share that status of being one of God's people. Without that status, you cannot anticipate His eternal blessings. But that can be changed today. So I urge you to consider that. It has to be an individual decision. You have to come to it yourself. You can't be born to it. You can't, you know, have it conferred to you by some other member of the family or anything like that. It's not belonging to a church or a club or a cult or anything like that. It's your decision. It's your decision of faith. But I urge you to consider making that today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have revealed yourself in so many amazing 
ways that you, through the ages, pointed to the Savior that you yourself were providing for the nations of the world. We're so grateful that you have given us the privilege of hearing and knowing and understanding this message, uh, this salvation, this good news, the gospel. And those of us who have accepted that already, we've experienced the presence of your Spirit in our life. We know that you are with us and that you are guiding and helping and protecting us through even the darkest times in this life. And we are so grateful and we're thankful that you are so patient with us because we can continue to offend you with our sin, but we're grateful that you accept the leavened loaf. We're grateful that you have made provision for us through your son, Jesus Christ. And so I pray for any who hear this message who have not yet found themselves in that blessed status of being one of your people by putting faith in Jesus Christ, that you would impress upon them today the need to make that decision of faith, that they too can receive your grace, that they can give up on their personal efforts, their personal pursuits of, of that vague something better, that wishful hope. They can give it up for a certain hope, for a knowing that they will be united with you in eternity and blessed to live in your presence. Thank you, Father, for your great gifts. Remind us again and again to be thankful for what we've given. As we sometimes run into those times where we tend to focus on the things that we don't have, where things are maybe tight, things are tough, I pray, Father, that you would remind us to be thankful for what we have and to trust you for your provision for the future. Because we pray in Jesus' name. One of the points Brian gave us to remember is to remember that all good things, all blessings come from God. Now that it, it all comes from Him. Uh, that includes material blessings. That includes spiritual blessings. That includes salvation. There's nothing we can do to earn it. It comes from God by grace. We think our response to that would be we put our faith and trust in Him and in His provision that we give thanks for the many blessings that he pours out on our lives, and that we go out and share those blessings with others.